Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to be having a chat about a bloke named Marcus Licinius Crassus. He was a Roman general and, and, and politician who really was a very nasty piece of work indeed. Um, alert listeners will actually remember, we've talked about this bloke on the podcast already, He's, uh, he played a role in the Third Servile War. Uh, we talked about Crassus then. So many other details uh, about this bloke's life that we haven't talked about. If you want to go and listen to that, of course, episode 147, get across it. But apart from being an obscenely wealthy property magnet uh, and, and, and the founder of a horrifically exploitative firefighting service, in inverted commas, I hope you can hear them, um, this bloke also ended up getting in legal trouble for improper behaviour with, uh, with a certain woman and more or less bought politicians wholesale with his vast riches. So it is funny how in the fullness of human history there are some things that remain very constant. Even 2,000 years ago, there were blokes with far too much money cutting about doing whatever they wanted, not giving, a, not giving a damn about any of the consequences. And Crassus was certainly one of these blokes. He did whatever he wanted. He, he, he went from being a military man to a real estate speculator and then entered politics um, and was and played a very important part, actually. He was a very important part in the, uh, in the, uh, in the collapse of the Roman Republic and, and the subsequent rise of the Roman Empire, although obviously he died before the empire uh, came about. But he was, you know, an important piece of the puzzle in terms of the, uh, the Republic falling and the, and the empire rising from its ashes. But quite aside from all of this, quite aside from his military, his financial, his political activities, there is just so much going on with this bloke, you won't believe it. Because as I say, very nasty piece of work. He, bur- he brought back decimation to punish his troops, uh, crucified thousands and thousands of people for good measure and he built his enormous wealth through the blatant exploitation of people less fortunate than him so i've I've said it once i'll say it again a nasty piece of work i think you'll agree Uh, a bit of good old-fashioned villainy today on half hour history you love to hear it before we begin properly uh big thanks to james alert listener james for the suggestion thanks very much mate a terrific suggestion it was too so thanks for that and also very quickly here before we start the show. No, I never really do this, but I'm making an exception this time because I know, I know 
that a lot of you, you stop listening before the actual end of the show. Oh, mate, don't try to lie to me. I, I can see the listenership statistics. I can see the big drop off in listenership as soon as 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 soon as that, uh, as soon as the episode uh, music begins to play right there at the end, you know, before the little outro. I know you stop listening. Don't try to get, don't try to hide from me. But just this once, just this once, I would advise you to listen to the outro because uh, some very important, very exciting announcements about half Us history merch at the end of this one so do get across it uh don't, don't i mean if you know go you can go back to skipping it next week of course but i do want you to get all the details about the merch that's being released this week so get across that in the outro anyway let's get to it here here's the story of marcus licinius crassus in all its nastiness off we go so we're going all the way back here we're going all the way back to 1115 bce so as usual when we head back before the common era the usual reminder we're counting years backwards here so 1115 BCE was followed by 1114 BCE and so on and so forth. But uh, back in 1115 BCE was when Marcus Licinius Crassus was born. He was the son of a famous Roman senator, the second of three sons, the middle child. Um, and despite his family's reasonable wealth, uh, he still grew up in pretty modest circumstances. It doesn't seem that his dad was too full on with displays of wealth and opulence. And in this regard, the... Uh, the apple certainly fell a long way from the tree, as we'll discover. But look, you know, after growing up, you know, in a reasonably comfortable but still, you know, pretty, uh, uh, you know, a family that wasn't too lavish there, Crassus had a bit of bad luck or, I mean, good luck, I guess, depending on how you're looking at it. L- look at it because he was the only one out of his brothers and his dad as well, for that matter, to live to an advanced age. His two brothers and his dad both died um, uh, well ahead of schedule. Crassus's older brother died in the late 90s, uh, while his younger brother and dad died in the early 80s as they went up against the Marians. Now, the Marians uh, and the Sullans were two political factions that were opposed to each other and, and essentially fought a civil war uh, for, uh, for supremacy in, in the Roman Republic around this time. Um, you, you might know, you might have heard of the bloke uh, Gaius Marius, right? The, 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 the faction, they were named after... Marius, the Marians, they were they were named after him. Uh, He's very famous for his military reforms. The, the Marian reforms um, were undertaken by Gaius Marius. He was a, a very high profile, another another uh, high profile Roman and general politician. Uh, undertook these huge reforms to the Roman Republic army, essentially turned into a professional standing army, trained soldiers. You know, rather than blokes who fought a little bit here and there and provided their own gear as they did, the Marian reforms opened up recruitment to everyone, not just those who are wealthy enough to supply themselves and. You know, these armies of new career soldiers cemented Rome's military supremacy. But anyway, as a politician, Marian, he had his, um, he, he had his faction of loyalists. His, uh, his opponent, Sulla, had his faction. And the two, uh, the two blokes and the two factions, they went at hammer and tongs. And at the point that we sort of start this story off with, um, uh, with Crassus and his family, the Marians had the upper hand. They had the, they had the better time of things. Um, his supporters, the Marians, were going around. They're causing all sorts of trouble for the Sullans, uh, which included Crassus's family. They were Sullans. His brother and his dad, they were either killed by the Marians or they killed themselves so as to avoid a dishonorable death at the hands of the Marians. But whatever the case, Crassus, he was the only one who survived and he fled. He left Rome because he was he was worried for his his, his safety, the safety of himself and his property. So he he fled Rome and left to Hispania, where he ended up in 87 BCE. And he ended up staying in Hispania for a couple of years, uh, trying to figure out and plan what his next move was going to be. In Hispania, he got in touch with some old family contacts that his dad had made. He gathered a a small army of around 2,500 troops, 
And in a move that will end up, we'd end up being quite telling here for about the sort of bloke that he was, he used this army that he'd put together to shake down small cities across Hispania, extorting money out of them with threats of violence. He'd park his, his, his army outside the city, go and meet with the city governors or whatever, and say, oh, geez, I'm in this big army out the front there. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you'd like us to move on, wouldn't you? And, of course, you know, get money out of them, shake them down, and off, he, off he'd go to the next one. So little more, really, than a, a well-connected thug, but it certainly worked for him because after three years in, in, in Hispania, after raising, you know, both men and money, Crassus sailed with his army, right? He sailed off to Africa and then to Greece, across the Mediterranean. And it was there that he joined up with Sulla and a group of Sullans here. Um, uh, and, and these, uh, you know, this sort of amalgamated army of the Sullans here led by their leader, Sulla, they took the fight to the Marians in a conflict known as Sulla's Second Civil War. This one went very well indeed for the Sullans. Uh, Crassus was there. He's commanding troops uh, on behalf of the Sullans. And at the decisive Battle of the Colleen Gate, the Sullans were finally ultimately victorious over the Marians once and for all. 50,000 men died at this battle. It was a very, very big deal. That I mean, you know, that, how's that for blood and guts? A little bit of that for you there. But this decisive victory for the Sullans effectively put them in charge of Rome. And at their head, of course, was Sulla. So he was large and in charge at this point. And this is a great result for Crassus, let me tell you. Because Sulla, he was known for his cruelty to his enemies, but also known for his generosity to his friends. And Crassus, don't forget, had sailed right across the breadth of the Mediterranean with an army that he had raised himself to fight for Sulla. And Sulla wasn't about to forget that. I mean, he wasn't about to forget the assistance that Crassus gave him on the battlefield. And so Crassus is in a terrific spot now that Sulla is the head honcho. So Crassus, with this newfound political favour, the army that he's assembled, the wealth that he's pulled together, what does he do with his new position, loaded up as he is with, uh, you know, with political favour, military might and, and financial success here? Well, what he does is this. He turns his attention to repairing the, the reputation and the fortune of his family, considering how much they'd, they'd suffered at the hands of the Marians. Because the shoe is on the other foot now. The, uh, it's now the turn of the Marians to suffer. Sulla, he seized the property of his political enemies and he auctioned it off very cheaply. And you can guess who was there to, to snatch much, uh, much of it up. Crassus was all too willing to snag as much formerly Marian property and wealth as he could, and Sulla was more than happy to, for him to do so. He didn't mind one of his right-hand men, one of the blokes who had helped him get to where he was, you know, turn himself into another very powerful figure in the city. So Crassus made an absolute fortune. As Marians had their stuff seized, they were sent into exile. This process was known as prescription. Uh, during this prescription process, Crassus, he harvested it all up wholesale. He made himself an absolute absolute bloody fortune. You might want to know how much, and I'll do my best to answer that question for you, because there have been various estimates of exactly how much Crassus made, you know, in his lifetime total. He's a very, very rich man, but it's difficult to put into today's terms. I mean, this happened 2,000 years ago. If I tell you that he made 200 billion cestuses, it might not mean all that much to you, because you don't know what, you know, two cestuses is worth, so never mind 200 million of them. But thankfully, there is something that humans have more or less always used as an abstract measure of wealth, isn't there? You'll remember this from the History of Money, episode 110, get across it. And that's something, of course, is gold. 
At his wealthiest, it is estimated that Crassus managed to amass riches that were worth around 229 tons of gold at the time. And if he were to have turned his wealth into 229 tons of gold, that would today be worth over 13 billion US dollars. So he was a very rich man, to say the least, no doubt about it. And of course, you know, you can't ever get that rich without being a little, uh, how can we put this, uh, flexible with your moral standards. And, uh, well, if if there were a moral flexibility contest, Crassus, uh, Crassus would he wouldn't have just won it. He would have paid off the judges. He would have poisoned the other contestants and he would have burnt down the venue as well, just for good measure. This bloke would do anything. For a dollar. Um, for instance, during this prescription process, when all these Marians, you know, being exiled, had their, their property confiscated, the, Mar- the, the the way that they were found out, these Marians, the way that, you know, it was decided who was and who wasn't getting their stuff taken off them, they, they were, the Marians all had their names on lists, right? The, the people going around, they had lists of names of people that were, were going to undergo this process, process of, uh, of prescription. And Crassus wanted the fortune of a certain bloke. There's this one bloke, you know, he'd amassed himself a fortune, very, very nice little uh, position that he'd found himself in there. And Crassus, he had his eye on this bloke's riches. But the problem was this bloke wasn't a Marian and he wasn't on the lists of the people who were, you know, getting the uh, getting this treatment here. So Crassus's solution, he just put the bloke's name on the list. He just organised to have the na- that this bloke, made out to be a Mar- he wasn't a marian but he was just you know all of a sudden he became one because crassus says he was and therefore he was exiled all of his stuff was confiscated and crassus slurped that up as well so they say you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs but crassus he's buddy there with above the frying pan holding holding a chicken squeezing it to make the eggs come out of its bum faster smashing straight into the pan and serving up a hot breakfast here and this was only one of the ways that he put together his immense fortune as well. And I mean, we talked about some of them in episode 147. I, I mentioned before, um, one of the ways that he, he made his fortune, you know, w- with property was buying up. Um, I mean, you know, he did all sorts of other stuff. He bought up silver mines. He was heavily involved in buying and selling slaves as well. But but it was real estate, buying up real estate where he made his biggest bucks. Let me tell you this. After, you know, not only after he'd bought the Houses of Exiled Marians on the cheap. After all this, none of this, he also went around buying buildings that were falling into disrepair or they were on the verge of collapse, otherwise, or they were otherwise uninhabitable. And he then used the slaves that he owned, many of whom were architects and builders. He specifically sought out slaves that, were, that had these skills. He used these slaves to rebuild the buildings and then lease them out. A pretty easy way to make money when you don't have to pay your labourers and because, you know, the rich get richer, he was able to buy more property with this money as he gained more tenants and gained more rents. He was able to buy more of these disheveled buildings, do them up, sell, oh, sorry, rent them out, not, not selling them, holding them all for himself, renting them. And he ended up owning a staggering proportion of all the buildings in the entire city of Rome. But this was just one part of his vast empire of riches. Because alert listeners will remember how I told you in that episode, the old episode of episode 147, about how Crassus set up the first ever Roman fire brigade. Now, 
if you don't know the story, you're thinking, well, hang on one moment. I mean, this this seems to be very at odds with this cruel, exploitative, ambitious and, you know, merciless picture we're painting of Crassus. Doesn't seem like a bloke very interested in public service at all, does he? You know, that's what fire brigades are all about, all about public service, firefighters risking their lives to save people and properties they contain and control fires of all kinds. So, you know, the last thing that Crassus would be interested in helping other people. Well... Crassus had a slightly different take to the modern one we have with fire brigades. Um, you know, much like a modern fire brigade, uh, when they learn of a fire, the uh, you know Crassus and his fireys, you know, well, they're all his slaves, but they're working as firefighters. They'd rush to the building, just as you would these days with firefighters. But that's where the paths diverge a little bit, because once Crassus and his slaves arrived at the building, you know, with all the buckets filled with water ready to put out the fire, Crassus would stand out in front of the building as it burned and wouldn't lift a finger to put it out until the owner of the building that was on fire sold him it. So as the fire consumed the building, Crassus would stand there, buckets of water at the ready, you know, again, not doing anything, negotiating the sale of this building that was swiftly becoming, you know, closer and closer to being just a pile of smoking ashes. And of course, as the fire got worse and the building continued to be destroyed, Crassus would offer lower and lower and lower prices until the owner, obviously desperate and realising that they'd lose everything if they didn't sell, would finally agree to a disgracefully low price because the the, the alternative was the aforementioned pile of smoking ashes. So... In this way, Crassus was able to buy these buildings. Once the sale was agreed upon, Crassus would then and only then order his slaves to put out the fire. And just like that, he had added another property to his portfolio and then would rebuild the building as he had done with all these other ones that he'd bought up around town. And again, wouldn't have to pay for it because it's slave labor. He's, he's just making money hand over fist here. And then once it was rebuilt, he would be able to rent it out and usually didn't have too much of a problem finding a tenant for the building because he knew there'd be at least one bloke needing a place to live, in this case, the former owner, who he just bought it off. Would now have to rent the building off Crassus, would have to rent the house that he used to live in, right, that had caught fire, been burnt down and rebuilt by Crassus, but was now belonging to, you know, the rich property magnet and not the bloke who had sold it to him. So Crassus was... An absolutely reprehensible villain. But, you know, as is unfortunately so often the case, being an absolutely reprehensible villain made him very, very wealthy indeed. And just in case you still need convincing as to how much of a reprehensible villain this bloke was, let me tell you this. He also eventually faced legal trouble because of the attention he paid a certain woman. Nothing changes, mate. History has seen it all before. Obscenely rich bastards thinking that they can do what they want, when they want, to whom they want, and are a law unto themselves. Well, back in ancient Rome at this time, there was a, there was an order of female priests known as the Vestal Virgins. They took a 30-year vow of chastity in order to carry out their religious duties. In exchange, they were given a place, of, afforded a place of high honour in Roman society. They were revered and, and celebrated a range of ways. For example, they were given uh, prime positions, places of honour at, at public events. Their carriages out on the roads always had right away, no matter what. 
Um, they had guards escort them everywhere. Injuring a Vestal was a crime that attracted a terrible punishment. Um, they could also pardon condemned prisoners. If someone on their way to being executed saw a Vestal or was touched by one, they would be pardoned on the spot just like that. So, you know, if, you, if, you were, if you're about to go and get executed in ancient Rome, you really, really were hoping Vestals were out and about that day. Anyway, long story short, they were held in very, very high regard, extremely high regard indeed. But the punishments that they themselves faced for transgressions were pretty horrific as well. Uh, for instance, one of their main duties was keeping the sacred fire of Vesta alight. And if any priestess ever let it go out, she would be brutally whipped, right? Although in the dark, of course, to protect her modesty, can you believe it? But worse yet, a Vestal who violated her, her vow of celibacy would be killed. and not in a particularly pleasant way either. They suffered a terrible fate. They were buried alive. Now, why were they buried alive? Apparently because it was forbidden to spill a Vestal's blood, so I don't know what's going on with the whipping earlier there. But that was the that was the rule. Um, so being buried alive, obviously a way to kill someone without spilling their blood, that was the preferred method of execution for these poor Vestals. But this ran into another issue because there was a law in ancient Rome that you weren't allowed to bury anyone, no matter who they were. They couldn't be buried inside the city of Rome. So, I mean, look, rather than, I don't know, burying them alive outside the city, I don't know why they didn't do that. Or, or maybe not even burying them alive at all, maybe not executing them for breaking their vow. The Romans instead um, found or, or made up, they came up with a, a very... Well, I don't know. I was going to say silly, but actually kind of tragic loophole here to get around this restriction, get around this here. They would take a Vestal who was found to have violated her, uh, to have broken a vow of chastity, and they would lead her down to a subterranean room, a room that had been dug out underground. Uh, and in this room was a, a bit of food, a bit of water and a couch, right? And then once the Vestal was inside, they would, they would seal off the entrance. They would fill in the hole that had been dug down to this room with, with earth. And... In this way, she technically wasn't being buried as the law saw it because, you know, she's just being put in an underground room. There's a couch, there's food, there's water, perfectly habitable, this room. It's just that there's no way out of it. So, I mean, you know, who knows what is going to happen next when the food and the water runs out. Thankfully, not many vessels were killed this way. It doesn't seem to have been a very rare punishment, but... You know, it does go to show just how seriously the Romans took their Vestal Virgins. So, when old mate Crassus is discovered to have been knocking about with one of them, he's hanging about with a with a woman named Licinia, right, who just so happened to be a Vestal. People were none too pleased, and he was accused very swiftly of corrupting her. He was seen regularly, you know, doing whatever he could to get on her good side. It looked like he was flirting with her pretty hard, whispering sweet nothings in her ear, clearly attempting to get her on side here. And of course, it wasn't long before people suspecting her of coercing her into breaking her vow of chastity. And as a result, he also got in a lot of hot water. He faced some very serious legal action. This could have been a real risk for Crassus here. Because, um, you know, as I say, very serious accusations could get him in a lot of trouble. But here's the best part. Guess how he got out of them. When he was questioned and dragged in front of a panel of judges about his conduct, and when he was given, you know, he was ordered to give an account of the way that he'd been behaving with these vestals, after being accused of attempting to corrupt this, this woman, Lacinia, he said, oh, no, 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 no. He had the perfect response. Check this out. Here's what he said. Got him off the hook completely because he goes, no, 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 no. I'm not interested in corrupting her, mate. Not at all. That's not what I'm after. Lacinia, she owns this stately villa out in the Roman suburbs, right? And I want it. I want to buy it off her and I'll do whatever it takes to get it. And all the judges, they go, yeah. 
that makes sense. Yeah, hey, he's he's probably telling the truth, isn't he, right? So it turns out that this bloke, Crassus, he wasn't interested in, you know, bloody getting it on with this Vestal Virgin. He just wanted to buy her house. And this was such a plausible reason for him to have been hanging around with her and, you know, trying to get her on side of that sort of stuff that people are like, yep, I mean, this bloke, he is known for his greed. He's known for his avarice. He's known for wanting to buy all the best properties in Rome and he'd be doing whatever he could to snag her house on the cheap. So he got away with it and even better, finally and ultimately managed to buy the house that he sought to off of, off of Licinia. She finally agreed to the sale, maybe just to get the bloke off her back. Unbelievable. Anyway, after moving back to Rome as an ally of Sulla, after amassing this vast fortune, this enormous property portfolio, Crassus, he's back on top. He's, uh, you know, he's in with the dominant political faction at the time. He had wealth beyond measure. He's in a great spot. However, his successes were overshadowed by another famous ancient Roman, Pompey the Great. Probably heard of this fella. He's off winning wars for the Republic. He's the talk of the town because he's being lavished with, you know, with, with glory and triumph, whatever else. And Crassus considered him his main rival. Crassus is famous for being very rich, of course, but Pompey is a, a beloved and celebrated general, and Crassus is very jealous of Pompey's success. Now, when Crassus was elected a praetor in 73 BC, a very high political and military position, he sought to prove himself and perhaps knock Pompey down a peg or two in uh, an event that we've already talked about extensively with Half-Ass History, of course, the Third Servile War. Crassus, um, as you, as many of you already know, he took the fight to Spartacus and his army of freed slaves during this conflict. And I mean, look, all the details are in episode 147. You, get a, you can get across it there. I'll give a very quick summary of what happened here the, today. Spartacus um, had risen in rebellion with a bunch of other slaves, uh, had been kicking the asses of various Roman legions up and down Rome, and had managed to resist all, resist all of the attempts to attempt uh, all the attempts that Rome made to end this rebellion. So finally, Crassus he steps up and he says, "I'm going to take care of business here." He used his enormous wealth to recruit and train and arm an enormous army, and uh, said he was going to take the fight to to Spartacus and put down this revolt once and for all. And you will remember how he treated not just the blokes that he fought against in this war, but also the blokes that were fighting under him. He brought back the, pro- the practice of decimation, where soldiers were divided into groups of 10, they would draw lots, and the loser would be killed by the other nine people with whom they'd drawn lots. This was something that ended up, I mean, look, on the positive side, I guess, it instilled a great amount of discipline in the troops that Crassus led, but the bad side of it is because they were absolutely terrified of him and they were more afraid of him than they were of you know Spartacus and the enemies that they would be facing on the battlefield so it certainly got him into line but Crassus uh, was in a great hurry here in uh, to put down the rebellion so with decimations whipping his army into shape he took to the battlefield and uh, was was seeking to get the servile war done and dusted because the Senate had called in Pompey to help out to, uh, to come and reinforce Crassus. Crassus wanted to get it done on his own. He wanted to claim uh, the glory and the prestige for himself. And he did exactly this. I'm not going to retell the story here. You, again, you can go and get across it all in episode 147. But suffice to say, Crassus put down Spartacus' slave re- uh, revolt with extreme prejudice. And just as he had terrified his own soldiers into you know subservience with, uh, with decimations, 
He left a stark warning to any other slaves that were considering an uprising by crucifying 6,000 captured rebels. Once Spartacus was defeated, these poor bastards lined the Appian Way, the road that led southeast from Rome, and they were a grim reminder of the cruel ruthlessness of Crassus. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. But in any case, however he did it, Crassus's role in putting down Spartacus's rebellion was very good for his career. And, and uh, he, he began after this to make his way into politics in a big way. Both he and Pompey were elected consul after the war uh, as they camped their armies outside of Rome until they received the position, basically not an entirely veiled threat. And Rome was no stranger to civil war at this stage. So the two rivals, they got what they wanted there with, again, this sort of implied threat of military action by camping their armies outside the city. And interestingly, after receiving the consulship, the two of these blokes, they seemed to hmm, maybe warm up to each other as a little little generous, but they certainly got on better than they had before. Um, they uh, Look, accounts of their relationship differ, uh, but according to historians like Plutarch, Crassus and Pompey were able to establish a, a working political relationship um, that was mutually beneficial for them both, although the two blokes still really didn't like each other very much. But... It, that uh, this, this political alliance was, again, expedient for both of them. It certainly benefited the two men. And of course, in time, this alliance was expanded to include a third person as well. A, uh, a third party entered this political union and uh, this tenuous alliance, once it became, uh, you know, a, a triumvirate, I guess you could call it, ended up completely dominating the politics of Rome for years. Crassus began to fund the political campaigning of a bloke who had had a very successful career so far as a priest he before entered uh, before he then entered the military and he served with distinction in the military he and his interestingly as well this bloke he, he and his family had been marians but i mean sulla he's been dead for years by now this old connection to crassus's former political rivals wasn't as important as it as, as it once had been so crassus acted as something of a patron for this fella and this bloke, since coming back to Rome after Sulla's death, had been kicking goals with both feet, rising through the political ranks. Crassus obviously wanted to bet on a winning horse, and that's what he did here by, you know, offering his patronage, um, funding campaigns, helping this bloke climb, you know, helping him on his way, climbing all the way to the top. And eventually, as I say, having him join Crassus and Pompey in power in this three-way union known as the First Triumvirate. And of course, I'm sure you've already guessed the identity of this fellow that 
Crassus helped climb to the top, it is none other than Gaius Julius Caesar, one of the most famous and important blokes in Roman and indeed and in, indeed in human history. From 60 BCE onwards, the triumvirate of Crassus, Pompey and Caesar effectively ruled the Roman Republic. Now, the reason that it took a triumvirate to do this and not just have not just one bloke, you know, rise to the top and seize all the power is that the Roman Republic was specifically set up to avoid that happening. The Roman Republic had a series of checks and balances, not unlike modern democracies in many ways, that prevented too much power being focused or concentrated in the hands of one person. But this kind of broke down, right? You know, this idea of making sure that no single person could ever become too powerful. This broke down when three people entered into a subversive alliance to look after their own and each other's interests and get around a lot of these checks and balances by increasing the amount of power that was concentrated on the three of them acting as a political unit. They shared political ambitions. They supported each other in ways that got around the restrictions on each other's power. And this arrangement led to these three fellows capturing an enormous amount of political power for themselves. Ultimately, they ended up in a position where they were kind of unassailable. They had that much political power between the three of them that no one could really stand in their way, and they could kind of just do whatever they wanted unopposed. This alliance, this triumvirate, it it directly and very strongly influenced the fall of the Roman Republic. It was instrumental in bringing about the end of the Republic and, and bringing about the rise of the Roman Empire, of course. After this first triumvirate, there was a second one uh, in the years to come. And with the second triumvirate, effectively came the end of the Republic once and for all, ultimately in, uh, in 27 BC, which we'll talk about a little bit later on. But for now, back in the 50s, what these three blokes did once they had this stranglehold on power is, is basically carve up the Republic between the three of them. Uh, Caesar was given command over Gaul, and he obviously went off and campaigned and, and, con- uh, and you know, conquered across, the, across what is modern-day France. Uh, Pompey was given uh, the provinces in Hispania and in Africa, while Crassus was given command over Syria. So Caesar went off campaigning in Gaul. Pompey stayed behind in Rome while overseeing his provinces. But Crassus, he headed off to Syria. This was a great deal for him. Really, really terrific spot for him to be in Syria. A very wealthy Roman province indeed. And Crassus, I mean, you know, we know he's got... is very ready to do whatever it takes to make money, he stood to inflate his wealth even further as the governor of Syria. But interestingly, Crassus sought something more than just wealth. I mean, he had it, I guess he's got enough of it, doesn't he? He wanted something different. He wanted glory and he wanted triumph. I mean, even today, right, 2,000 years later, Pompey is remembered as a celebrated general. Caesar is remembered as... I mean, he's remembered as Caesar, mate. What do you want, right? But Crassus is remembered effectively as that really rich bloke. Crassus, at the time, you know, didn't take 2,000 years of historical dissection to figure this out. Even at the time, Crassus knew that he was living in the shadow of the other two blokes in the triumvirate. He knew that his colleagues, you know, when it came to military triumph and and glory and, and whatever else, they were completely outpacing him. And he wanted to do something about it. He wanted to shower himself in military triumph and come back to Rome a hero, a conquering hero like Pompey, like Caesar, and get himself on their level. And on top of that, I mean, I guess, you know, I say maybe he thought he had enough money. He definitely didn't. He definitely didn't. He, he wanted to expand not only the, the, the wealth and the power and the prestige of the empire in himself, but also 
his treasury. I mean, obviously, of course, he did. So, this greed, this avarice, this 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 thirst for triumph, it was a very powerful motivator for Crassus, but it would also ultimately be his undoing. Roman Syria bordered on the Parthian Empire. The Parthian Empire stretched across modern-day Iraq, Iran, and and uh, and into western Afghanistan and Pakistan. Right, and Crassus, he liked the look of it. He did. Conquering Parthia would guarantee him the triumph that he craved. I mean, it would you know it would rival the achievements of Pompey and Caesar. Remember, these three. They were political allies out of expediency rather than, you know, a great personal affection for one another. And and Crassus was very, very ready to put the other two to shame here. But on top of this, I mean, I said before, you know, maybe he's got no money, whatever. He knows that conquering the Parthian Empire will make him even richer, given how prosperous the Parthians were, given how much money and wealth they had. He knew that conquering them and seizing that wealth would make him an even richer man than he already was. So... In 53 BCE, Crassus decided to gather his troops, cross the Euphrates River, and take the fight to the Parthians in search for conquest. He again used his enormous wealth to assemble an army of around 40,000 troops, expecting such a huge force to be able to waltz into Parthia and crush them into the dirt. Now, interestingly, he was offered an alternative here. There was a bloke whose name was Artavadzes II of Armenia. Armenia was a smallish kingdom to the uh, to the north-ish of both the Roman Empire and the Parthian Empire. And these two empires had actually been struggling. They'd actually sort of been contesting and, and fight, contesting each other and fighting over the kingdom of Armenia to make it a client state of theirs. And it looked like Artavadzes was actually about to... He was ready to throw, throw in his lot with one of the two sides here because he approached Crassus and he said, Listen, mate, I know you want to invade the Parthians. If you come through Armenia, not only will I, you know, bring the kingdom over to your side, but also I'll give you a further 40,000 troops that you can go and fight the Parthians with. Now, a couple of reasons here for Artavadzes to do this. Obviously, he didn't want his kingdom to be destroyed as these two other empires fought over it. He decided that it was probably a good idea to throw in his lot with one of them, and he ultimately picked the Romans. And he also at this stage didn't uh, didn't seem to be in too great a position financially and was a bit worried about paying the upkeep and maintenance of his troops. And so he thought, well, look, if I can just put him under Roman uh, Roman command, won't be my problem anymore. So that was the offer that Artavadzes II made to Crassus, said, look, if you take a detour and invade through Armenia, I'll give you these troops and you can take care of business there like that. But Crassus refused. As go- I mean, going through Armenia, it would be a significant detour, Crassus wanted to take the most direct route straight into the the guts of Parthia here. And so he turned down the offer of the Armenian king to go up to the north. Now, this had the knock-on effect of the the Parthians. They heard about the offer that Artavadzes had made to Crassus to, to support this invasion. And they were none too pleased with it. And they actually mobilized against the Armenians and began to began to fight uh, this war against them up uh, up to the north here. And so Crass is going, "This is bloody brilliant, fantastic. Let's get stuck in right now while they're all fighting the Armenians. We're going to get straight in there. We're going to we're going to mount this invasion right into the middle of Parthia, across the Euphrates, in we go." In order to find the best route into Parthia, Crassus he sought out the advice of a local chieftain named Ariam named Ariamnes. Right now, Ariamnes was a former contact of Pompey. Pompey had been aided by Ariamnes in, in some former, some previous campaigns that Rome had made in this region. 
And so, as you might think, Crassus, he thought it would be a good a good idea to get in touch with this old ally of Rome and, uh, you know, see if he could get a bit of, uh, a bit of inside information onto the best way to, uh, to launch this campaign into Parthia. However, say it with me, this proved to be a bad move because in the intervening time since Ariamnes had been on side with the Romans, he defected. He'd flipped. His loyalty had been bought by the Parthians and he was now in the pay of their king, Orodes II. And so as a result, he was absolutely ready to sell Crassus up the river. So Ariamnes made an absolute fool of Crassus. He told Crassus that the Parthians were weak. They're all over the shop. They're disorganized, he said, and the time is ripe for an attack. And even better here, Ariamne says, don't worry about it, Crassus, mate. I'll lead you into Parthia myself. I'll take you to the best place to launch this campaign and we'll be off like a shot. Don't you even worry about it. And Crassus goes, thanks very much, mate. Off we go. and We'll head off marching, uh, marching eastwards here. And off they go, led by Ariamnes into the middle of a desert where there was no water. And Ariamnes had, of course, got in touch with Orides and told him about the situation with the Roman invasion. So... The Parthian army loops around from the north, rides south to where this enormous force of Romans are all camped in the middle of this, you know, inhospitable desert with no water. And as a result, the Romans are found to be a very easy pickings by the Parthians, right? When the Parthians turned up, I mean, you know, as I say, Ariamnes had planned this all out with Herodes. There are only 10,000 of them. There are only 10,000 Parthians compared to the, you know, I mean, the Romans utterly outnumbered them as much as maybe four to one. But even so, the Battle of Carre was a total and unmitigated disaster for the Romans, who, once the fighting began, they were slaughtered wholesale by the Parthians. The Parthians are famous. I mean, even today, they were famous uh, for their cavalry archers, right? The Parthians were incredibly skilled horsemen. They were able to fire bows from horseback behind them. This meant that Parthian riders, they could zip about on the battlefield firing their bows in all directions. It didn't matter which way they were riding, which way they were facing. They could fire effectively 360 degrees, more or less. And as they zipped about, they would set up effectively mobile supply caches because they would, they would strap arrows to camels, which they would then dot around the battlefield so the Parthian riders could ride past the camels, reload uh, on, on arrows and continue to ride about on their horses and, you know, just absolutely, absolutely tear the opposition to shreds. And to make things worse, Crassus's army was mainly heavy infantry. They were shot to pieces by the Parthian cavalry, who again could shoot their bows forward or backwards, which meant what, what the Parthians would do, they'd ride up, shoot, shoot, shoot. Yep, okay, the, the, the Romans weather the storm, raise the shields, you know, try not to get too hurt by the arrows. And then the Parthians would feign retreat. The Romans go, oh, bloody hell, they're running away. Let's chase them. Off we go. The Romans would run after the supposedly routed Parthians, who would then, on horseback, turn around and shoot the Romans to pieces once again while feigning retreat. And to make this even more impressive, in case you don't think that's that, I mean, how hard could it be, right? To, first of all, ride a horse, not a very hard thing to do. But secondly, shoot a bow from the back of a horse, getting slightly difficult. Thirdly, turn around and do it backwards, right? So you don't have your hands on the reins. You've got your hands on the bow. You're facing backwards to shoot someone with some level of accuracy, right? 
But to make it even more impressive than all of this, they didn't have stirrups. The stirrup wouldn't be a widespread piece of technology for hundreds and hundreds of years at this point. And so these blokes are sitting on their horses, squeezing them between their thighs effectively, not holding on with their hands or their feet or anything. And they were still able to shoot a highly advanced, highly trained, highly disciplined Roman army to absolute pieces here. After losing almost half his forces in this battle, Crassus finally ordered the retreat. The Parthians were running rings around the Romans in, I mean, you know, in both a literal and a figurative sense here. Crassus had had his pants pulled down completely. I mean, he's forced to fight in the middle of the desert, completely outmatched by these Parthian tactics. His soldiers, they're not happy about it at all. But the retreat was made all the worse once Crassus finally ordered and all the Romans begin to pull, pull out. Crassus ordered, this won't surprise you, that all of the troops that had been wounded to be left behind on the battlefield, right? And these, these wounded troops were then massacred where they lay by the Parthians who didn't really seem to be in the business of taking wounded prisoners. They just killed them. So after this retreat was carried out, Crassus's army was about to stage a mutiny. They had just been eviscerated on the battlefield. Crassus had just left all of these wounded soldiers on the, you know, behind to die. And the soldiers refused to fight anymore. They demanded that Crassus sue for peace with the Parthians. And when the Parthians came offering a peace envoy, Crassus was effectively forced to accept it. He was beside himself. I mean, not just with the, you know, having lost the battle, he was beside himself with grief as his son had been killed during the fighting and the Parthians had ridden around on the battlefield with his son's head on the end of a spear. So Crassus was thoroughly demoralized after having seen after having seen that and so he agreed with his soldiers' demands and he went to this, uh, you know, he went off with his peace envoy to try to figure out some kind of end to the hostilities here. But this didn't go too well for him either, and it only got worse from there, because this peace agreement that he sought ended up costing him his life. He rode off with some of his other generals, and look, the stories to the end, as to the end of Crassus' life, they vary a little bit, but I'll give you what, you know, what we think we know about it. He went, off with his, uh, he went off with his generals and met up with the Parthian commanders, and during this meeting, someone grabbed the reins of his horse. We don't know who for sure. We don't know exactly who did it, right? But someone ra- uh, grabbed the reins of his sword. Might have been a Parthian. We don't know. But this triggered fighting between the Romans and the Parthians that had, meet, that had met to discuss peace terms. And in the fighting, Crassus was killed. The Parthian victory was total and complete. They had rebuffed the Roman invasion. They had devastated the Roman armies. And now they had killed the Roman generals, including Crassus. It was an unbelievably humiliating defeat for Rome. But even after his death, Crassus was due a little more humiliation because the Parthians really brought him low, even after killing him. Have a listen to this, right? Crassus, I mean, as we've very, very firmly established by now, he's known for his, his greed, his avarice. He was known to have invaded Parthia in search, not, for, not, not just for the glory of military triumph, but also for its wealth. And the Parthians knew this. And to make a mockery of it, the Parthians poured molten gold down the throat of Crassus's corpse, thinking maybe, perhaps, that that would finally sate his thirst for wealth. But it didn't stop there either, because they then beheaded the corpse, took it back home with them, and this head was used as a prop in a play 
that was put on for the entertainment of the Parthian king, Orodes II. One final humiliation for Crassus. After Crassus's death, the first, the first triumvirate, of course, it dissolved. Tensions had grown between Caesar and Pompey, and, and they ended up as political foes. Uh, famously, Caesar ultimately marched his troops on Rome, triggering a civil war as he crossed the Rubicon in 49 BCE, before going on to defeat Pompey. Uh, and then Caesar was declared uh, dictator in perpetuity, although, of course, this perpetuity didn't end up being a very long one, as he was assassinated, as I'm sure you know, in 44 BCE on the Ides of March. But this consequently led to the rise of Octavius, uh, Caesar's adopted son, who went on to become known as Augustus and the founder of the Roman Empire. So, despite being a greedy, exploitative, ruthless, cruel, and all-around nasty piece of work driven by avarice, Crassus ended up having a pretty significant effect on history. Despite his hunger for glory, perhaps Crassus would, if he could see his legacy today, Perhaps he'd be glad that he's generally known to history as that rich guy who aided Caesar's rise to power rather than the guy who had his head cut off and used in a play for the entertainment of the man to whom he lost everything. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Crassus, and I do hope you enjoyed it. But we've got a big, big and very important bit of housekeeping that we got to get to here. So again, once again, I advise just one time you listen to it all the way through here because this is very, very exciting stuff. There is a brand new Half Ass History merch store open right now. I've partnered with T Public. I'd like to thank T Public for taking me on board. They are now in charge of making and distributing half Us History merch. I've, uh, I've worked on a bunch of different designs. And if you head to uh, the new half Us History merch shop, you can go to bit.ly slash slash H-A-H merch. That's bit.ly slash ha merch, H-A-H merch. Um, if you jump on there, you can see all sorts of stuff, right? There's there are there are tons of different designs. There's blood and guts and horrible murder design. There's a it only got worse from there. A couple of different designs based on that one. Uh, there is a picture I found uh, that was drawn in the margins of an illuminated manuscript in the uh, in the medieval times of a bloke playing a trumpet with his ass, and I've turned that into a t-shirt. Don't worry about that. Um, there is a Diogenes t-shirt. There is a, uh, of course, I mean, need I say, there is a toilet t-shirt. Don't worry about that. And there's some classic Half-Ass History merch there as well. Some stuff with Herodotus, uh, Herodotus with the sunglasses on as well. Now, the reason I advise you to head over there swiftly is that there is a site-wide tea public sale going on right now. So if you want to get this, uh, this merch at a discount, now's the time to do it. Head to bit.ly slash H-A-H merch. Uh, you can also find, obviously, if you've got a halfhousehistory.net, you can find the link to the uh, to the, the merch there through that website as well. But if you go there, you can snag yourself an absolute bargain. There, uh, I think it's I think it's something like 20 or 30% off some of this stuff as well. And you can buy just all sorts of things. Not, it's not just T-shirts, hoodies, uh, tank tops, jumpers, baby onesies. There are mugs, there are notebooks, there are face masks, 
Um, there are wall prints. There are phone cases and laptop sleeves as well. There's other stuff that I've also forgotten. Badges, magnets, they're back. Stickers, all sorts of stuff that you can go and get there. Um, so I commend it to your attention, my friends. The long-awaited revamp of the half ass History merch is upon us. And when I said I was going to do it before the end of the year, I did kind of expect it was going to be December. Got it done in October. So don't worry about that. That's a big, big W for Riley. So head over there, grab yourself some stuff. Uh, sale going on at the moment, of course. And uh, let me know what you think. The good news is I can still upload and submit new new merch designs. So if you come up with a ripper idea for something you want, let me know what it is and if it's workable, if it's easy, and if it's something that I can put together for you, I will do my best to do it. Thank you to everyone who submitted merch ideas. I think I implemented most of them, to be honest. I mean, a lot of them were very similar. Everyone wanted Blood and Guts and Horrible Murder. Everyone wanted uh, It Only Got Worse from there. Most of the ideas that I got, I was able to turn into some kind of, um, uh, you know, some kind of, of merch product for people. So I do hope you enjoy them. But I'd love to do, if you have a look at the Diogenes t-shirt in particular, I'd love to do more stuff like that. So if you've got an idea for something, you know, silly or funny or clever, rather than just a picture and a quote or whatever, rather, you know, just a picture and half hour history or whatever, if you've got something that uh, that would work well on a t-shirt or a mug or anything else like that, let me know because I really think the Diogenes t-shirt is a ripper and I'd love to do more like it. So... Head across there. Let me know what you think. Any more design ideas that you've got, let me know. Thank you once again to T Public for facilitating this. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm very. I, I mean, I know this sounds very sort of corporate and whatever else, but I am very excited to be working with them. Um, I've had. I've been. I've been talking with them for a long time about this. Been setting everything up, um, and I'm hoping that it's going to be uh, the beginning of a beautiful friendship. So we'll see. Anyway. Head over there, grab yourself some merch, and uh, let me know what you think of it if you uh, you pick any up or if you've got any ideas for some new stuff. That's that. So, of course, apart from that, halfhousehistory.net, find the episodes there, patreon.com slash halfhousehistory if you want to uh, support the show, and that'll do it. Okay, as ever, closing out the show with a quote, uh, with a question from Reddit here. This one comes to us from Amiditom. And it is, of course, a question to do with Roman history about Julius Caesar, who has appeared in this episode a couple of times. Amiditom asks... After crossing the Rubicon, why did Julius Caesar say the die has been cast if die metal casting wasn't invented until the 19th century? Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.